to do? Making a video. Making a video. OMG, listeners, you are now tuning in to the 40th episode of Rank and Review. And this episode, Matthew Risling is returning for the third time to discuss ghosts. I'm really uh, happy that we've made it to the 40th episode, and I'm going to keep on pressing on. Um, I would love to hear more feedback from you. Um, we are on Facebook. We are on iTunes. I'm going to work on the Twitter thing, but I'm not a Twitter guy yet. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But I just wanted to thank everybody for listening to the show and just ask them, especially in celebration of the 40th episode, to get the word out there on Ranking Review. As usual, this episode is going to contain spoilers for the six movies discussed, and it is going to have coarse language. If you would like to send your feedback to me, please do so. You can do that at rankandreview at gmail.com and visit our website at rankandreview.ca. Um, check it out. Look at an alphabetical listing of the, all the movies we reviewed and uh, listen to some old episodes, skip fast down memory lane and uh, just drink it in. Sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 40 of Rank and Review. This is actually the 40th episode. The last time uh, Mr. Risling was here was the 30th episode. And we were also talking about ghosts. Yeah, I'm important for the milestones. So <laughs> yeah. I should be here for the 50th and the 100th for sure. I was trying to think of this, like this could be called Ghost Volume 4, but do we have like a, a strong enough theme that it could have a subtitle so that we could work with? And, and why always ghosts with, with, with you? Oh, I love ghosts. Although at some point I guess I should move on. Well, hey, whatever you want. Whatever floats your boat as far as I'm concerned. But um... uh, This one especially. I, my last two um, guest appearances I spent complaining about all the awful movies that you gave me. So I thought it would be good to to, you know, for your listeners to know that I don't actually hate movies and you don't ghost hate movies. all movies, right? <laughs> There's a reason that you do watch ghost movies and you do like some of them. Yeah. Hopefully one or two of them might be haunting this list. <laughs> well, I would say that the obviously worst movie on this list was only, say, 10% better than the best movie on the last list. That's still an improvement. I'll yeah. take that. No, that's a huge improvement. Yeah. <laughs> You could just be my ghost guy. I know I did one episode with Matt Burgess, but as long as whoever I'm talking to is named Matt, I could just do a pretty... Yeah. <laughs> That's what, you're either Matthew Risling or your name is Matthew, otherwise you don't cover any of the ghost ones. Yeah, that's fair enough. That seems reasonable. Yeah, except for Jeremy might be doing kind of a ghosty one soon. Uh, musical ghosts? <laughs> sort of, sort of. Um, is there anything you want to say before I list off these movies and we get started? Uh, maybe an apology to people out there in the internet uh, for the fact that I have a cold that just won't go away, so if there's coughing and sniffling and my voice is echoey... Um, if that's... Matt is particularly sexy sounding this episode... Well, it does sort of give me a deep, sexy voice. Indeed. Indeed. I can maybe chipmunk you up a little bit in the end, <laughs> yeah. too, if you want. So yeah, I'll try to talk slower so that when you speed up the, the reel... <laughs> 
Um, okay, the the six ghost movies we're going to look at this time, we have the adaptation of the Richard Matheson novel Hell House, The Legend of Hell House from the 70s. We have the much more recent film The Haunting in Connecticut, and we have the 80s classic ghost epic, which you've mentioned both times you've been on the show, and now we're actually going to review Yeah, the first horror movie I've ever seen, uh, the first movie to really traumatize me. <laughs> so today's the day we finally get that taken care of. Uh, the Thai West haunted hotel film Innkeepers. The American remake from the director of all those Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Gore Verbinski, The Ring. And last but not least, from uh, Guillermo del Toro, one of Larry's faves, The Devil's Backbone, a sort of companion movie or, or brother-sister movie to Pan's Labyrinth, as yeah. Guillermo has called it. Uh, when did this come out in relation to Pan's Labyrinth? Was it like a it was year? Al- well, it was almost five or six years, I think, at least between the two movies. Oh, wow. Um, I think that he came and did like Mimic and Blade 2 in a couple of his first American movies and then went back and did this Devil's Backbone. Very similar themes as in Pan's Labyrinth, but uh, in in framework of a much more classic ghost story. But we're going to get there. Right. I can tether the movies together from one sort of plot beat to another, but I don't know if there's an overarching theme other than people are going to be dealing with supernatural. Well, I mean, why not ghosts? Ghosts that are better than the previous six ghost movies. Ghosts 4, the better one? (laughs) Yeah. Murder, vampirism, cannibalism, drug addiction, alcoholism, sadism, mutilation. How did it end? If it had ended, we would not be here. In the past, on this very podcast, if you have listened to them, as you said, you've heard me sing the praises of Richard Matheson. And uh, I'm familiar with the novel that this adaptation is based off of Hell House. And I'm <laughs> hesitant to admit, Richard Matheson himself adapted the screenplay. Oh, wow. Um, the, the thing is that my problem going into it, other than sort of this sort of stilted 70s nature of the movie and the high melodrama <laughs> associated throughout it, is that... In adapting his own novel, he I think Matheson might have become his worst enemy. <laughs> How's that? I'm, I'm not familiar with the novel. Well, he still tried to keep to some of the pseudo-sexual angles. There's the the wife of the doctor who has the sleepwalking and is very seductive. But... Yeah, I'm curious about why you would say pseudo-sexual. <laughs> well, she just... in the book, she's a much more frail sort of uh, less sexual figure. Uh, like, she's not as, like super attractive right out of the gate and there's a theme throughout the movie throughout all, with almost all of the characters of ugly sexuality because the house was the place of these like orgies and this demonic rituals and all this stuff and um it seemed like he sort of pulled the dirty bits out of the movie and sort of just kept the very basic ghost framework and what it you... hurt the story for me no, now before I get on, because I kind of disagree with that. Um, I mean, we do have a ghost raping a woman. That's true. Um, and the wife 
dropping her clothes a couple of times for uh, Roddy McDowell, but maybe we should start by plotting it up. Sure. A scientist who is very interested in parapsychology and the ghost phenomena is hired by a rich, dying millionaire to prove within a week whether there is life after death. And he's going to do so by going to this infamous haunted house, for which an investigation that had happened in 1959 had rendered everyone there either dead or crazy. Right. So this ragtag group, the scientist, sort of skeptical scientist figure, this sort of young, beautiful psychic, and the one lone survivor who still has a few marbles rolling around in his head, played by Roddy McDowell, uh, who is just hilariously melodramatic throughout the entire movie. <laughs> I kind of liked him in it. I, I mean, I didn't mind his melodrama, honestly. I thought it played very well against the um, stiff upper lip doctor, whom I, I, I thought... I mean, it's a British movie from the early 70s, which means late 60s. If they, they tried that character today, it would read totally false. But because it was kind of a period piece, uh, yeah. I, I bought it and I was, uh, I was really amused by him. But I thought the uh, Roddy McDowell, um, he, like he played it up a little bit, but it worked together with that stuffiness. It seemed like there were so many dramatic proclamations, like, per scene. <laughs> and so many answers like, or is it? <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Are we safe? Are we? You know, like, all of these, like, like, it's punctuated like that so often that it actually sort of becomes funny to me. Yeah. And when I'm snickering to myself, it kind of kills the spooky atmosphere <laughs> of this Velasco house, which uh, in the book is very richly sort of detailed, sort of the debauched history of it. And because he can't get into that sort of just detail in the background, it's just sort of left behind us. To the point where Roddy McDowell, when he finally spills out the events of it, it just seems completely random that he knows all of this information, right? He just spills out the plot because that's the narrative of the story that we don't get as background in the movie, but exists throughout the novel. Yeah, I, actually one of my notes for it is that there's a lot of... The characters do a lot of expositioning to themselves. Um, right. Like, there's a, there's a big dump of exposition towards the beginning uh, when they all get into the house and they are quizzing Roddy McDowell on the events things of the previous that he knows. Yeah. And I actually thought that that was a little bit of a missed opportunity because the I got the idea from the movie that the book must have been really interesting and the reveal <laughs> must have been really good. We learn at the end something about the fact that Mr. Belasco had fake legs, mm -hmm. so he wasn't a giant. And things sort of made sense retrospectively, but only sort of because... It was sort of mentioned offhandedly that he was tall, but yeah. I think in the book that's probably really important. He's, he's known as this giant. He's got this sinister reputation of being this very intimidating man who can get anyone to do anything, right? Yeah. He, he corrupts anybody he touches type of this powerful figure, and really he's just a, a sad little man. <laughs> yeah, and they, they rush through that a little bit. Yeah, and... Um, when I talk about sort of the weird sexual angle, because it's more graphically explored in the house, particularly the wife character, there is a, a coldness in that relationship. They're not sleeping together. Uh, she tags along and he get the feeling like he would have just assumed she hadn't. Yeah. Uh, she, it's one of those relationships where she seems to need him more than he needs her. Yeah. And sorry, are you talking about the book? Because that came through in the movie. This is sure. I'm talking about in the book. But in, in the book, she's a, a much more, at least I picture her a much more sort of plain, you know, 
plain Jane sort of quirky librarian awkward chick uh, than she sort of played very beautifully in in the movie her turnaround she sort of gets really threatened by this beautiful psychic and uh, she has to do there's this really horrible scene where she has to do the strip search on the psychic woman because the doctor in in the, in the seeking scientific absolute you know clarity that no no tricks are being pulled he asks his wife to strip search basically this other woman and she's sort of she gets turned on by that she's sort of sexually ignited by that and her transformation just doesn't seem to happen in the movie she just always seems like a sexual figure to me yeah i think she might have actually been miscast because she was um cast by a very like 1960s sexual woman of a certain age like later 30s early 40s vaguely aggressive if that makes sense (laughs) she didn't she wouldn't look out of place in like an avengers style cat suit yeah like she had that look about her um but yeah i just didn't feel that character come through and that that sort of ugliness to the house it's mentioned it's talked about but i don't really feel it in the characters i don't feel their transformations no another one of my notes uh is that none of the characters really seemed scared enough of the house they none of them really seem to have a problem going to spooky places by themselves um and the way it started uh really well i thought it did a good job of getting to the point i think they were in the haunted house before Before the the credits credits were done yeah um so that was quite efficient and when they first got there the one psychic wouldn't go into the chapel and so I got the idea that this would be a house where there's certain rooms that are really foreboding and... and Will be built up towards. Yeah, yeah, and it didn't really happen. Everybody seemed okay sleeping alone in those giant quite Edwardian... There's no name for the era after Edwardian, but whatever. The house was built in the 1920s, but it's that big um, manor-type house where there are obviously ghosts in every spooky room and even when they're getting attacked by ghosts people are kind of cool sleeping in their own cells that goes to that sort of common like they're constantly either overreacting to atmosphere or underreacting to legitimate spooky (laughs) events and that does become funny to me after a while like uh they watch this physical manifestation in 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 this psychic making this shape come out of her fingers this ectoplasm like fairly conclusive something hinky supernatural and yeah like you say everyone's sipping tea and you know (laughs) you know it's fine or like the um psychic florence tanner yeah um getting attacked by a cat in a scene that the cat looked a little bit silly after a while because a lot of the shots were like they were throwing a stuffed cat at her obviously but i didn't mind i forgave it because of when it was made but she had some serious cuts all over her body and then she's like yeah I'm fine. Yeah, that'll be good. I'm still sleeping alone in my room in the haunted house tonight. Um, um, they did do a good job of keeping her in the house. Like, they they gave her a good motivation to be there in so much as she thought she was doing God's work. Indeed. And, you know, this was an important thing. So I didn't call bullshit on... I, I came closest to calling bullshit on Roddy McDowell staying in the house, but he was actually sort of campaigning to get them out. Yeah. He felt because he could shut himself off psychically, he, he, if he's not using his powers, that he will, you know, just be able to wait out the clock, collect his check, and, you know, retire, hopefully. Right, <laughs> right. and he also says to them that the house doesn't mind visitors, but you can't be screwing with it. That's yeah. when it's going to get you. I think that, and this is something that is guilty of in the book as well, there's something pretty obvious of the fact, getting towards the end of the book, or, uh, the movie and spoilers, that Florence is killed by the cross... 
and the scientist is killed by his machines. Right. Uh, like, uh, they're both right and they're both wrong simultaneously, and they both sort of pay the price of their lives for their refusal to hear the other side. Sir, did you think that was on the nose? I thought that was not bad. Like, yeah. there was a certain... It wasn't really obvious about it. Like, well, I mean, it was, I suppose, that she got... I mean, she was crushed by the huge cross, and he is machines. He worshipped the machines, die, she worshipped the cross, right? She didn't die on the floor with her arms splayed out like no. Jesus Christ or something, and, you know, I, I don't know what the equivalent would be with him getting blown up in the machine, but I thought they handled that relatively well, in the same way that... And the fact that she actually wrote the, the, the Belasco, the bee in blood, uh, trying to, you know tell everyone actually she was wrong about this whole Velasco's son thing she had been misled she was willing to concede that even though it took her death to make it happen right for listeners out in radio land she thought and they all thought there were a bunch of ghosts and Velasco was like the general and making them do stuff yeah um, and so the reason why the Christian psychic was trying to stay uh, not so much to redeem the evil ghost but to rescue his, his son, son whom she thought was being tormented by him and that's where it gets really ugly, especially in the book, where uh, this ghost pesters her every night that it to, he wants to make love to her and that that would be the thing that would set her free. And she resists and resists and resists. And finally, when she lets it in is when things go really bad for her. And in the book, it actually manifests as a rotting corpse while they're mid-coitus. Oh, it's wow. quite horrible. Uh, in the movie, you can tell that there's a realization halfway through where it turns from kind of unpleasant consensual sex to what is obviously her being raped by a ghost. Yeah. And I actually thought they handled that scene um, pretty well. Like, I think they captured a lot of the unpleasantness while avoiding... Um, Graphic anything, yeah. It's yeah. all it's all implied. Basically, when I watch this movie, it makes me want to read the book again. So that's not high praise for the movie, necessarily. And I do, like, I, I can't... I can't ignore the snicker factor that, that this movie does have at times. Like, if you're laughing more than you're scared, I can't really fully endorse the movie. But I still do like Matheson, and I like the imagination of the story. Uh, but um, um, Yeah, I think I might have liked it more than you. I thought there was a certain... Like, it was dated, but there was also a certain timeless quality to it, um, which there there isn't always, and particularly in ghost movies... I guess we'll get to it. I didn't think Poltergeist was timeless in the same way. Right. So there are special effects stuff that is jarring, but that's going to be the case with almost every movie that we see and almost every ghost movie that we see. Um, but I thought it aged relatively well. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the cuts I found jarring, there'd be a scene and it was like, okay, this is done and we're not going to... Like, there's no leading us out of the scene it just ends very right. abruptly and then there's a new whatever tuesday seven o'clock in the morning yeah. and a new one has started i think it would be a fun drinking game if every time somebody either said something dramatically at the end of a scene or a scene started with the caption of the date and time you had to have a drink oh you would be blitzed <laughs> like because every every scene starts like that yeah. right they just the scene they decide okay that's played out we're not gonna we're not gonna take you out of it it's just the important things have been said so cut 
At first I thought Shining, but this is actually a few years before The Shining even, so I don't know what, what the, that choice was about necessarily. The fact that it was set over the holidays didn't seem that significant, you know. I think they were just trying new stuff, because I noticed some camera work that I didn't necessarily agree with, but I thought I could sort of appreciate yeah. they were taking a chance, like when we see there's some sort of ghosty haunting scene and the shot goes upside down and sort of spins a little bit yeah. and there's something Hitchcockian about it in a super, way that a lot of those... Super, close, close-up shots for yeah. conversations for some reason. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of those Hitchcock angles don't really work that well, you know, 40 years later, but you can appreciate what they were doing at the time. Yeah, I think that is well said. It feels like they're trying something there. They didn't necessarily have a plan, but they were trying stuff. The only other thing, something that I found... The thing that I found the most amusing about the movie was right, right at the beginning, there was this superimposed uh, warning that (laughs) although this film is fictitious, it could be true. It could be true, Matthew. (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) And why was it a warning? I don't know. I don't know. It's just one of many questions, I guess. Why do bad things happen to good people? just a regular family like anybody else we didn't ask for this and we didn't deserve it it's perfect it's spacious and affordable i'm just wondering where's the catch well it does have a bit of a history matt did you find a bedroom down here it's nice and it's cool everything's back there Mm things under the floorboards. I've seen this kid almost every day since we've been here. You're scaring me. We'll join the club. So like any horror movie that claims to be based on true events, you have to put huge quotation marks around based on true events. And I think like this one is particularly hilarious because it's based on a like made for TV documentary, which was based on true events. <laughs> so it's like this chain letter ghost story. But uh, if you have the DVD or the Blu-ray, you can hear the woman herself, who's the subject of the movie, talk straight faced about all of these horrifying ghostly events that happened to her and her son who was at the time fighting for his life with cancer and her whole and family that framing device was the stupidest thing in retrospect we'll yeah. get to that yeah <laughs> her talking about what is it why do bad things happen to, to good people? people we got no answers for you yeah <laughs> and also everybody lives so yeah. that's good <laughs> Everybody got spooked real good, and then they moved away. And her son's cancer. Review done. 56 seconds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Virginia Madsen stars as the the matriarch of this family, who move into a house in order to be closer to the hospital where her son's being treated that is perfect for them and that it's got good size, it's closer to where they need to be, but it's weird in that it used to be a mortuary in a funeral home. Yeah. So uh, it's got that ugly history. Um, and lo and behold, very shortly after they move in, 
creepy stuff happens. Um, this also seems maybe aggravated because they're a very Christian family, and uh, in in ghost worlds, the ghosts, evil ghosts, really hate you if you love the Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, thankfully, the Jesus is powerful and good at fighting ghosts. I think it's a fairly well-made movie, and it's notable in that uh, our Canadian actor Elias Coteus and uh, Virginia Madsen are reunited from the previous uh, horror movie they worked together on was The Prophecy, starring oh, Christopher Walken. Oh, that's right. Walken. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> so it was, uh, they probably was like, hey, nice to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't believe the story being told here at all, but I'm just going to approach this movie as a straight up, if you know, you're trying to scare me, tell me a ghost story. I, I will go with you. And on a basic, things jumping out of the dark and making me go boo technical filmmaking level, I think it's fine. See, I'm going to have to uh, <laughs> disagree with you a little bit. Okay. Um, there are some things that I thought they did um, quite well. I thought when they were, there's a scene with a psychic channeling spirits and there's ectoplasm, very much like an updated version of what happened in The, the Hell Legend House. of Hell House. Um, I thought the ectoplasm looked great in this uh, first time that I maybe thought it looked really good in a movie. Um, and they use CGI well, which almost never happens. I almost always think CGI is the kiss of death for ghost movies. But I thought they were sparing enough with it that yeah. it kind of looked neat. And somewhere in between, like, sticky and gross, but also ethereal and intangible, I thought they did well there. As far as things jumping out and saying, boo, they were so close, but the music was so bombastic and mm -hmm. awful and it's like it reminds me of vaudevillian comedians who didn't have faith in their audience to recognize when there was a joke so they went da -da yeah drum roll there we go and that was like every time they were something's creepy something's creepy something's creepy and then you see something and there's also this swell of just like the most stock scary movie i couldn't even Im scary movie music i couldn't imitate it but it's like that stuff that you've heard a billion times and if there was a made-for-tv ghost movie that is the exact type of music that you would expect to hear and it's not interesting and it's too loud yeah there is something about it that's a little bit big in scale it's not quite like operatic or huge like bram stoker's dracula or anything like that but like the the, the they're, they're treating this like heavy-handed history almost, yeah. right? Um, they're trying to make you, this is a true story, all this actually happened. There's also the wince moments. Like, there's a scene where they show this eyelids being cut off corpses. Yeah, I've got that actually in my uh, comments of things that I thought were... Woof. Well done. Woof. I don't I don't often, you know, want to look away like I'm pretty hardened. I've watched <laughs> a lot of fucking horror movies. That shit was pretty ugly. Mm. Um... It doesn't feel like a PG movie to me. I mean, yeah, it was rated 14A according to the DVD. So it made uh, a shit ton of money when it came out theatrically. And it has spawned a sequel. And it's hilariously entitled A Haunting in Connecticut 2, The Ghosts of Georgia. <laughs> that seems like a tourist um, <laughs> what, like a Georgia tour or something put up by <laughs> Travel Georgia. What about a haunting in Georgia? <laughs> we, thought, we would get it, you guys. We would get it. Anyway, um, please, what do you think of the haunting in Connecticut? Um, I, this was the one that I referred to as most obviously bottom of the list. Okay. 
there were some effective scenes. Again, the eyelid cutting off scene was done well. The ectoplasm was done well. There was a scene where I can't remember if somebody punches a wall or puts his hand in a wall and the household's all fleshy and it's covered in maggots. And that right. was quite an interesting scene. But there was this almost visceral pointlessness to the movie. Um, there's almost no story. And it seems, everything seems to be geared to solving this mystery that isn't a mystery. Uh, there's some psychic kid that lived in the house at some point and died. And there was some guy that was doing dark experiments for some reason and that caused all the ghosts but there's the is the little kid ghost good or bad because when we see him he's all burnt and scary looking but he's actually trying to be helpful right? yeah and it seems like somebody in first year screenwriting school thought that that was a twist because things shift a little bit well we're certainly going to see it done better in another movie we're talking about anyway yeah um but i didn't like the other movie being the ring and something like The Sixth Sense or, you know, the, these movies that are famous for their good twists, right. the, those twists are good because they totally change the paradigm of what you've been watching and they totally flip everything that you thought and you can go back and think, the way that I watched it, it made sense perfectly, but actually this way it also makes sense perfectly yeah. and um, it's really, I mean, it's it's something that I think our brains really like, which is why these movies um, that can do it well... Um, tend to be Stay so. with us. Yeah. yeah. But this was just nothing. So we knew why these ghosts were there and, oh, it wasn't this bad guy. It was another bad guy. So there's that. <laughs> um, and also, I had written, as I mentioned, with Hell House, um, that the characters do a lot of expositioning by themselves. Yeah. Elias Coteus was very noticeable in his role as this movie's narrator. Indeed. The movie just couldn't the screenwriters just couldn't figure out because this is obviously a first draft how they're going to get this exposition out there so just every now and then Elias Coteus will say stuff that just puke out all of this like this is what's been going on and and okay it's well. like I said with with Roddy McDowell giving all that exposition at the end of Hell House we don't even understand how he knows all this other than he's a psychic, but all of a sudden it just comes to him. We don't have any pay help in that payoff. Um, I don't want to overstate my joy for The Haunting of Connecticut too. I say it's completely okay. <laughs> like, uh, it certainly didn't blow me out of the water. I don't necessarily understand why it was such a huge thing at the box office, other than that very common horror thing that's based on true events. But, um... I don't know. And again, we talked about the the bookend thing where she's being interviewed, possibly for the Discovery Channel documentary that this was <laughs> inspired by. The acting here is better than the Discovery Channel documentary. We can give it that. Although I wanted to mention Martin Donovan, who I've talked about before. He plays the husband who's always away and comes back and is grumpy. And yeah, he was almost a really interesting character until they decided not to do anything interesting with him. And there's also something about that actor. There's a weird flatness to him. I don't know, like, uh, he has, like, that one scene where he comes and he busts all the light bulbs because he's pissed off that they have every light in the house on. And it's that sort of classic horror movie thing that I usually like when somebody is, you know, by not believing the unbelievable stakes of the horror movie, ends up making things way worse for the protagonists. Right. You know, now it's even scarier because it's all dark and spooky in the house. But, yeah, there's just... 
He's got this monotone delivery that he always sort of... It's, I'm always seeing Martin Donovan whenever I see that guy, you know? But, you know, I actually really liked the scene where he was busting all those light bulbs. Because you were was right a, there with him? He been a recovering alcoholic who had fallen off the wagon because yeah. um, of all this financial stress and his son's got cancer. Um, and I thought one of two things might happen... Either, well, one of a few things, but either he might become something like possessed or might become a dangerous figure himself. Um, As it turns out, he just breaks light bulbs and then yells and then apologizes. Or I thought maybe something will happen and there will be some sort of redemption or some sort of character arc. But it's just, he seems, as you said, kind of flatly angry. And then there's this scene where he explodes that I actually bought it. I thought, I mean, he seemed like... A potentially dangerous guy and when the family is all huddled together locked in a room it feels like they've done this before and he right. really can become dangerous but then nothing happens with that yeah i'm sorry <laughs> and then she's like no do it again and you're out and he's like okay i won't and then he doesn't so yeah. <laughs> that's good but it's kind of like that's the whole thing about the movie why do bad things happen to good people nothing all that bad happens well, um, I mean, they, their son is going through a horrible experience. Kyle Gallner plays Yeah, he's the going kid. through he's a whole through horrible this. experience, but if they hadn't moved into the haunted house and met the psychic ghost, his cancer wouldn't have been psychic cured. Yeah. So all of this is by way of saving his life. Yeah. I think it might have been interesting if they played up the <coughs> fact he's being pumped full of chemicals regularly, he's on the edge of dying himself, is there, is there not a haunting? Is this not all in his head? Yeah. But when we have ghostly things happening to everybody in the family, it's very conclusively not that, right? So they can't play that. I mean, that might have been something to help it. But Yeah, yeah, and they could have actually done something, I mean, could have gone as far as to balance it in the Pan's Labyrinth type of way where it's, you know, there may, like it's perfectly readable, with this supernatural stuff happening, and it's perfectly readable without it happening. Yeah. That might have been one tack to take, but... I also... One thing that I will say that I like, that I've seen in uh, uh, other ghost movies, we talked about uh, Dark Water sort of being as another example of this when we, when we did that movie, that they're kind of prisoners of poverty in this house. There's a typical thing where they can just, why don't you just leave the house? But there's like eight of them living there, yeah. right? And uh, they've they're trying to sell their other house so they can properly afford this house, and um, they really don't have an option to, to to leave other than sleeping outside with children. You know, <laughs> I, I find that an interesting angle to play. A similar movie in the Entity it was like, uh, just move away. Well, they can't. They're dead broke. <laughs> this is where they live. Yeah, and they did a pretty good job establishing the poverty. The dad had to sell his car. Uh, and there was sort of a confrontational scene about that where you could tell that, that um, the money situation was getting to him. Yeah. I don't know. All the pieces were there. It just didn't 100% connect. But I didn't hate it. I thought it was, like I said, fine. <laughs> no, I say it's the most obviously the worst one to me. I would give it maybe a C+. Plus. It's not it's not a bad movie, but there's nothing really good about it. There's no point in watching it, I would say. And the climax, the sort of forced explosive house fire climax, where all of a sudden there's bodies falling out of the walls. I mean, I think it's a little bit off the rails by that point. Yeah. <laughs> like, um... I wondered if that wasn't an homage to Poltergeist with the bodies falling out of the swimming pool dugout. Yeah. 
Maybe. I, I don't know. But at least they justify... Well, it was a mortuary. He was keeping the bodies. But the fact that nobody noticed... No renovations had ever happened in the house where they happened to notice, hey, you got a bit of a corpse wall happening here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, if you're going to be thinking that deeply about these ghost movies, I think that you, <laughs> you're working against it. Yeah. And, you know, if Elias Coteus didn't think it was worth spouting off about why it was there, it's probably not important to yeah. filmmakers. And, you know, think. if they're not happy with this film, they'll always have the prophecy. <laughs> the house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. So from one family in peril to another, but this family is, you know, not going to be under the guise of based on a true story. In fact, this is about as big and fantastical a ghost story as you, you could ever come up with it. I get the feeling like Steven Spielberg, you know, read the Amityville horror and sort of said, me too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Although this had more of a, um, uh, and I, I uh, had obviously totally forgotten because I saw this uh, like 20 years ago was the last time I saw it, something like that. Wow. Uh, actually, I saw it with you. Um, but I had forgotten how light the tone was and how... Disney. <laughs> yeah, almost weirdly comical. At the beginning, there's a scene where a guy's riding his like an uh, an older guy is riding a bmx bike that's too small for him and he's carrying a case of beer and then kids are tormenting him with uh, their remote control cars and then he falls and a bunch of the beer breaks and yeah. it's it's played for laughs <laughs> what an idyllic suburban neighborhood yeah yeah and i just didn't under i didn't understand the choice really like i mean it wasn't funny but it wasn't terrible but why why is that needed for this movie well and i think that the fact that spielberg actually has a writing credit on this and of course not to jump into the conspiratorial pool right away it's been said that spielberg largely directed this movie uh cast members have said in the past that they were entire sections of shooting where toby hooper was not on set well, Toby Hooper was a bit of a raging alcoholic, wasn't he? I think he can be a bit of a difficult fellow. And again, I, I think another thing that adds credence to this sort of rumor conspiracy thing is look at every Spielberg movie and look at every Toby Hooper movie and tell me which category Poltergeist falls in. Because this family, beautiful na- neighborhood, the sort of whimsical nature, the, the heartstrings, the big John Williams score, you know... Uh, this all screams Spielberg. To me. Yeah. <laughs> and in a way, that makes the movie safe. Because when we're in Spielberg, we can be entertained by Spielberg, but I, I, the stakes never feel that high. I always feel like everything's going to be okay, right? But this movie is Poltergeist. This movie's going to go dark. Um, 
So does it still scare you, I guess I'm going to ask, all these years later? No, there's nothing scary about it. It's <laughs> uh, it's not as unscary as Poltergeist 2 turned out to be, which we discussed the last time I was uh, on this show. Uh, the scene that really traumatized me was that one ghost hunter looking in the mirror and touching his face, and his face was falling off, and it really looked a lot like a rubber face model or something. Yeah. Um, so... That wasn't scary. Also, in the um, when the wife had fallen into um, the, pool. the pool in the dugout and the bodies were falling on her, that was really upsetting to me as a child. Um, that that maybe is the closest that the movie comes to having something resembling scary, but that's not really scary. You could just imagine how unpleasant it would be. I remember when I rewatched that movie this time around thinking that that secondary sort of climax after the rescue of Carol Ann, that one sort of sequence later might have been a sequence too far. Like they, they could have probably just called it a good night after they got Carol Ann out and then she was out of there, but they decided that no, they were going to stay another night after that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the reason for staying another night was really questionable. Like yeah. why they didn't like, why would they go back under any circumstances? But I'm going to back up and because I'm not going to be overly negative about this movie. In fact, I'll be more more positive than negative. Like, I love the moments of discovery. I like the early sort of small beats when things start going wrong. And Joe Beth Williams' character, instead of being, like, horrified, is kind of really into it. When she can make the chair slide across the room, it, it's like amazing and yeah and then she makes her daughter slide across the room that yeah was, yeah that was charming <laughs> there was actually a lot of charming moments with this family yeah. that i thought aged better than the ghost stuff so like that throwaway scene kind of where uh coach and his wife are smoking pot and he's reading the reagan jerry award-winning actor <laughs> oh, right he's a jerry award winner yeah um but he was reading ronald reagan's biography yeah it was just awesome beautiful it was like they were trying to make a like a week <laughs> <laughs> or the subtle kind of i don't know it was not even a backstory or peripheral story but just the subtle uh clues about the daughter's promiscuous habits where um they say that they're going to be staying in a motel off of the interstate. And she's like, yeah, I know that place. Or when, right. right after the big climax, <laughs> she runs out of her friend's car and she's got this big hickey on her neck. Yeah. Um, I remember the difference between my experience with the kid, other than being much more frightened of the movie, and I will give you that. Uh, when I was a kid, I really locked into the little kid's experience, particularly that snaggletooth little boy. <laughs> It sounds mean, but it's true. He's really got a mouthful of teeth. Um, but, like, I was that kid. His battle with the clown and that whole I hate you fight and then being grabbed by the tree and almost swallowed alive, like, that was just amazing to me yeah. when I was a kid. Watching it now, I'm all about the parents. There's a scene that drifted by uh, all my other viewings until my most recent, where Dermot Williams and Craig T. Nelson, Jerry Award-winning actor Craig T. Nelson... <laughs> I put the kids to bed. They go into the room and shut the door. And she rolls them a couple of joints, like a joint each. <laughs> and they both start smoking weed and talking about the day until Carol Ann walks in to explain complain about noises in her bedroom. But I completely missed that whole angle to the movie. And um, what Poltergeist really solves for me is like, why don't you leave? These people are affluent. They could leave whenever they want. Right. Carol Ann disappears. Their little girl disappears, but they can still hear her, sometimes even smell her. 
she's in the house. So of course they're not going to leave. And in a way, that sort of that that solution in the screenplay as to keeping them there is something that a lot of haunted house movies just don't have. They're either not scared, like you say, they're investigators who just are, are more curious than scared. So if they're not scared, we're not. Or you know, they're people who are there and don't know it's haunted, so there's no stakes for them. Right. So I I, I like that. I think that that still works. The special effects are nostalgically eighties. <laughs> What that can we say? Stop motion of all those Star Wars toys that made me so jealous as a young man watching when they're moving around in this. Uh, Thousands of dollars worth of toys flying by the screen, I'm sure. Yeah, and it just looks, it all looks kind of silly. Like you could easily be playing Calliope music and it could be an ad for Toys R Us. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I have to agree with you that the movie is not that frightening anymore. But I am still completely charmed by it. It carries me along. Like, I like. I didn't feel bored watching the movie at any point. I was involved with it, right? Um, and for a movie, what is this, 30-some years old now? <laughs> yeah, it would be early 80s. I think I saw it on my seventh birthday. So, so yeah. Thereabouts. <laughs> so, I think considering that, it has aged well. And for a movie that's, that's nestled nicely in the middle of the 80s, it's not embarrassingly, like, cringeworthy, like, big hair, distracting 80s, yeah. right? You sort of can re still relate to these people, you know? Yeah. They're nice American Republicans who, who mean well. <laughs> no, and this is one of the things that I said was sort of redeeming about Poltergeist 2, is that the family has a lot of um, chemistry together. These actors obviously get on well. Yeah. Um, particularly Coach and his wife. <laughs> couple of curious moments yep. just to bring up. One is early on when the 16-year-old daughter is leaving for school and there's three, I don't know what they are, landscapers or something that are working for the family and they all start like catcalling her in the most like obvious, disgusting, like these... Not funny, cute, wink, wink way. Yeah, <laughs> and she does this elaborate thing of giving them the finger um, in the 80s for, for guests or listeners too young to remember it was fashionable to do this big Rube Goldberg series <laughs> of gestures that ended up climaxed in the finger. So she does Correct. that and that was the big payoff. But her mom is watching this outside the window and she's just smiling like, oh, these employees of mine. Yeah, you know, they... that's hilarious. She should be out cock punching all yeah, of them. Right like they are seriously <laughs> sexually harassing her daughter. There's three guys. They're not she's not like even walking past a construction site they're within grabbing distance of her yeah um and i guess it was a different time that was okay well like i said the there's this weird 80s thing like nowadays mom and pop would never be smoking a joint in their bedroom you know and some of the stuff that the kids say you just wouldn't you wouldn't hear uh just the different climate of the 80s but i can't i don't know i kind of find that weirdly charming about the movie too <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the scene that I just described was both charming and, uh, I don't know, I thought perhaps a little bit grosser than I had, uh, uh, just a little bit on the gross side of charming, but it's also a time capsule, You like this, that would be considered, would have been considered a funny scene that just doesn't age yeah. well. I will say, even though we both said it doesn't go all scary, it does a good job of turning the dial from sort of Disney charm to now in more spooky territory. To, by the time they got the scientists there doing the investigation, um, you know, the atmosphere that it's presenting is 
at least closer to what you imagine a straight-up horror movie would be. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and the sense of wonder as well that they're allowed, as well as fear, I, I appreciate. And that really feels Spielberg to me, too. There's one side of them that are horrified, but, you know, seeing the footage of the lights coming down the stairs has also got this weird sort of wondrous quality to it. Right. You know, I kind of appreciate that, too. I guess if no one's ever seen a ghost, I think it would be a pretty amazing and unprecedented thing to experience. And a lot of times we don't feel that weight in movies, you know. Yeah. So it was addressed here, and I appreciate that. Yeah, they did a pretty good job there. I was also a little bit curious. Um, so these are all new housing developments that it turns out that this house is haunted because... They were one of the first houses built in the neighborhood, and it was built on a graves, graveyard. And they it used just, to be a graveyard. They relocated the graveyard. Well, so they said that, but as it turns out at the end, they just relocated the headstones. And there's a scene earlier on, before we learn about the graves under Craig T. Nelson's house, somewhere quite far away, there's another graveyard that needs to get relocated. Yeah. Um, and then the big the big climax at the end or the big reveal is you never move the bodies but this is all new development like i don't understand why there were two massive graveyards this i think far it was establishing the... the pattern yeah but who where did those bodies come from it's not like there was like you know towns will have graveyards because people live in towns and get buried right. by the church um but it couldn't just be a town because why would a small town that I guess got bulldozed to nothing have two big graveyards right. like it was just it seemed like an awful coincidence yeah. that I guess I didn't think graveyards. about it that way I figured the business just they figured people when they situate graveyards do it in places that are meant to be scenic and beautiful so we'll buy up the line of the graveyards move the graveyards and put up our condominiums there or whatever right. that was their like modus operandi we, and I would have bought it for one but two, two it just seems it. like there's yeah. an awful lot of graveyards fair enough I mean, have we been hard on Poltergeist? I feel like we've been hard on Poltergeist. I don't know. I, don't know. I would put it, like, I gave it a B minus B. I, I think it's still watchable. It's more enjoyable, I think, as we've discussed, as a, a, a movie of its time that couldn't be made today but was made well for the 80s, and there's a certain nostalgic feel, and some things were done technically well. Yeah. Um, it doesn't age that well as a scary movie. Well, it doesn't age at all as a scary movie, yeah. but as an interesting movie, it's it's all right. Not all ghost movies have to be the hard R, you know, go-for-your-throat movies either. I think you can do a good spooky PG ghost movie. I'm not against that necessarily. In fact, I think it's rare to have a hard R ghost movie. I think almost all of the movies that I've reviewed for this have been PG. Certainly most of think today's all movies. The Devil's Backbone is the only one of the ones we're reviewing here that are R-rated. Yeah, and that's not even a hard R. That's no. a soft R. Do you know the story of Madeline O'Malley? She was the woman that died here in the hotel. She hung herself after her fiancé stood her up on their wedding day. And ever since then, people have reported seeing the ghost of Madeline O'Malley roaming the hallways waiting for her lover. Some say she's even looking to take up a new one. This is our last weekend open, so we've got to find some proof that Madeline O'Malley really exists before this place closes down. I have my microphone so we can make do with EVP investigations. Yes, I like a room for the night. Since the hotel is practically empty, we might have a good chance of making some real contact. What was that? 
So here comes the time in the episode where I have to once again, presumably, defend Zionist. <laughs> uh, he does have a good reputation. If you look him up on the internet, people seem to like his work. But I always feel like whenever I end up reviewing one of his movies, I'm the guy who likes it. <laughs> and I'm like, in his corner. One thing that I will say is true that you tend to prepare yourself with if you're watching Ty West is that the man will take his time. He really is all about the atmosphere and working your nerves and getting you to a deserved, an earned payoff. I think more often than not it works. I have given him negative reviews in the past, but for me, I think that the innkeepers works way more than it doesn't. Is it for everybody? No, but I think if you, you know, like atmospheric spooky movies, this is one of them. <laughs> well, Larry, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you here because you won't have to defend this movie from me. Uh, I thought The Innkeepers was great. Awesome. Uh, it was definitely yeah. one of my favorites on the list. Uh, we'll rank very high. Um, but, I mean, I had mentioned to you in an email or a message a couple of days ago that I had mixed feelings You're about it. two minds it. or something, yeah. And there's part of me that like it's weird that I like it I don't exactly know why I like it I mean there are some things that I have an idea about mm -hmm. um, the characters were well both drawn. really well drawn and well acted well cast um, but kind of like how haunting in Connecticut there was no point there was no reason for the movie really like the story really to be told that's kind of the case in Innkeepers there's no important mystery that needs to get solved or does get solved there's no paradigm shift i don't even know if there's what you would call a twist um it's really slow uh, it it's broken up into chapters which i thought was a nice touch yeah. but i'm not even exactly sure why it was broken into chapters or what the deal was um and I kind of like I don't know the the movie is greater than the sum of its parts because I don't know why I liked it as much as I did but I liked it quite a lot. Well, I think you know this this is a very different movie than Poltergeist, which we just came to. If the family from Poltergeist ran from their you know spirited ghosted away home and and, and went to this hotel, it would have been a very different movie altogether. But um, I think this movie is about its characters and it's sort of about that confrontation with the supernatural. What we have here are two people who really, I feel, want to believe in the supernatural. Yeah. Um, the character that, uh, was it Pat Healy plays? Yeah, his name's Luke. Luke, uh, he has claimed to have seen a ghost in the past, and we find out subsequently that this is bullshit. Yeah. Whether he was doing it just to impress the very cute Sarah Paxson, the much younger of the two ghost hunters, or whether or not he was just trying to get credit for his web website, well, I don't well, know. Yeah, I mean, he works as an innkeeper in an old hotel. Presumably, uh, he's been there for a while. The actor was in his early 40s. I assume mm -hmm. the character was in his early 40s. Just one of those guys that... I guess got the job when he was 17 or something and hasn't Never left, left it. And you know the 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 hotel that their innkeepers at has a reputation for being haunted and I think he probably just liked the story and like telling himself the story and like telling other people the story and he's putting together this website with sounds, mysterious sounds or whatever that he's heard there. And probably when um, Sarah Paxton, her character's name is Claire. Um, when she got into it, it became something they could do together because he's obviously got this huge crush on her <laughs> that he just about tells her at one point. Yeah. 
Um, but that that moment where two people, in this case, I don't think he's necessarily skeptical, but he's never seen ghosts and is not expecting to see it. And it's it would be that great thing that would happen if one of the dozens of ghost you know documentaries that they have on TV where they go to places and freak each other out and there's jittery shaky camera. I want to see something where they actually authentically fucking see something and lose their shit. And I thought the actor did such a good job of losing his shit when he thought there was a ghost. Like, he didn't... In some ways, it wasn't cinematic, right? He didn't scream. He didn't... Like, he just started crying and was (laughs) humiliated and had to run away. Yeah. He fell apart, and like you know, that wonder moment that you know, the scientific eye or the investigative curious eye who wants to see this, and yet when he sees it, can't handle it. Right? Sarah Paxton seem, is much more of a true blue believer, and she's like receptive to it almost. And that receptiveness proves, in a lot of ways, to be part of her undoing. Really. Well, yeah, that must be why there's a psychic character played by Kelly McGillis, yeah. former sex symbol Kelly McGillis from Top Gun. Yeah, and she <laughs> says that Claire is in particular danger, and it's never explained why she's in particular danger, but it must be that she's more attuned to to the supernatural. Yeah, and she's really actively seeking this ghost out in the way that that Luke isn't. Yeah, Luke is just sort of fucking around on the computer and, and clock watch until he can go, you know. Do whatever he does when he's not about. Uh, watch a lot of internet. Watch pornography. That, that scene where she was show, his browser history. It was. I mean, this movie is just so full of nice touches. Yeah. Um, that was one. She was looking in his browser history for something, and no attention is brought to the fact that there are all these triple X sites. But yeah. it just says so much about Luke. There's another scene where she's taking out garbage, and there's this big heavy garbage bag, and she keeps trying to throw it, it into, into the, the dumpster, bin. and the the dumpster lid keeps closing and there's no there's no real reason for this scene um i mean it leads to her locking a door that will come back later later but they they didn't need to have that long scene right like it's just but i like that scene no me too it was (laughs) building up the character it was um tonally ambiguous which works really well for ghost movies the, the stuff that I question maybe a little bit more, but again, I, I wouldn't necessarily lose it. I would just question it. There's a scene where she goes to get them coffee, and Lena Dunham, this right, woman, right. She, she created this HBO show, Girls. She's like a, you know, a big, big, big name in, in, in TV in Hollywood right now, anyway. She's got this weird one-scene role of this, like, bored employee at a coffee house who won't let her leave, who just wants to bore the shit out of Sarah Paxton with her life story. Why is that scene there? Yeah. Or the guest that they're constantly neglecting, who's clearly hiding from her husband, and who's just always pissed off, you know? Yeah, and they're rude, too. And also, um, Luke always forgets to bring towels Towels. to people, and I thought that that might come up somehow climactically, but it really doesn't. Nope, just But it does a good job of establishing a non-forced kind of close fun relationship between the two characters where like she is as close as you could get to the manic pixie dream girl without being that yeah like she's not shitty about it or not she's the genuine article in a lot of ways yeah. her interest in the supernatural is real she's just absolutely earnestly open to it yeah and she's like she's not super gorgeous but she's cute in that quirky way but it works because her quirks aren't telegraphed so yeah. much 
I kind of liked her goofy, nerdy vibe that she had. It kind of, like, she sort of seemed sweet, so you kind of felt for it when things got all dark and shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, things that uh, didn't work quite so well for me, uh, like in Haunting in Connecticut, there are a couple of ghost scenes. There's a scene where there's a ghost in bed with her, mm-hmm. um, and it turns out to be a dream presumably or was it um but it gets really bombastic music-y in a way that kind of wrecks the scare for me it would be much creepier just to have i mean so much of this movie is understated and there's so much going on in the background why not understate that ghost and just make it a little bit more horrific because it's not swell of brass instruments when we see it um and i think that's I would say that that's almost always the case in the ghost genre that less is more. Yeah. Um, about the sort of craftsmanship of the movie, it, like I have the DVD and there's a warning when you watch it or like say, please watch this in a dark room and turn the sound way up. Like they paid a lot of particular attention to sound design and there's sequences with Sarah Paxton wandering through the hotel waving the microphone about that I, I do think does reward you if you can if you're in a nice dark room and you can play something loud I think that the movie that does help work your nerves yeah and I, that may actually be one of the reasons why I like the movie so much because I just watched it the other night and I'm staying in the guest suite in my dad's house in the basement and I had I got new headphones um so I was watching it in a dark room in headphones nice. and it was very like it just captured me the whole time yeah it, it works very well and it, like it's very meticulously made it, like you say there's stuff you don't know why it's there but definitely for a reason it, it is there one thing I do want to ask you about because um, it's one thing that I don't know if I'm mixed about but if I'm, I've always sort of questioned the caption that starts one last guest that creepy old dude who shows up and insists on going to that room upstairs and uh subsequently ends up taking his life you get the feeling that that was the best place the happiest place he'd ever been in his life and he chose that's where he wanted to end it did we need that extra story arc do you think the other story was enough to sustain it like well i thought there was something going on between him and the existing ghost who was presumably a woman we get various various histories of her that are unreliable um and when we find out that Luke was making up some of it that those histories get even more unreliable but I had kind of imagined that that was the room where something bad happened to her and he had had some relationship with her but who knows what it was like maybe he murdered her or maybe he raped her maybe they were in love or maybe something something but this 80 year old guy that goes up to a room to slit his wrists in a bathtub which is a really odd way i think for an 80 year old guy to kill himself yeah. surely there's some pharmaceuticals that he could take yeah. but then um spoilers i kind of don't want to spoil this because i think people should see it okay um He's instrumental in... The climactic moments. Yeah, um, and hostile. And I don't know if because he's a ghost he becomes hostile, because in life both both of the innkeepers were quite nice to him, yeah. um, and he seemed appreciative of it. So like maybe the building is evil and it just turns everybody into stuff, or maybe there was some relationship between him and the regular ghost. Because he had to... He wanted to go to that the inn before it closed this right. was important to him he so, wanted to sort of die with the hotel i guess yeah i don't know like what was your take well 
I can't help it because I guess that's the way I'm wired. To I go to the Shining, like it's like a hotel that sort of collects spirits. If you die there, you kind of stuck there, and that he somehow knew that, and that was sort of his play for immortality. Oh, that's an interesting theory. <laughs> but I mean, they don't establish that as a thing of the hotel. As far as we know, there's only that one ghost that they're looking for, right? But again, maybe there's more is implied, or is are they collecting more? You know. Um, Kelly McGillis, who's playing this ex-celebrity who's now a psychic, I, I can't help but think that the they're actually referencing Dee Wallace. Uh, she still does horror movies and sci-fi. The, the bulk of her career has been, but she's also a spiritualist and fancies herself like, into crystals and all that stuff. And I kind of felt like uh, they couldn't get Dee Wallace, so they, they got Kelly McGillis here. Um, I don't think they couldn't get Dee Wallace as a phrase <laughs> no, that no, carries no. much weight. <laughs> I don't think she's that much She was booked, okay? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> she may have been doing a conference that weekend or something. Uh, I, I just thought, I mean, I think that makes sense. I had assumed it was just another one of those nice, odd touches of the movie. There was no reason that the psychic had to have been in a popular family sitcom yeah. 20 years earlier, 15 years earlier. Right. Um, but th this movie really likes these details that are not necessarily significant, or they're not... Um, I like that the movie doesn't go out of its way to make us necessarily like all of our characters, you know? Like, the Kelly McGillis character is kind of a cow, you know? Yeah. And, like, the Pat Healy character has definitely got his issues, you know? We kind of like the Sarah Paxton character, but she's impossibly naive somehow, it seems, you know? Like, I don't know. The, everybody has their flaws and just wears them proudly, I yeah. guess. I don't know. The movie works for me. Uh, it's... It's a slow burn, and it's not for everyone. There is not a fright around every corner, but the frights that they deliver, they earn, and for me, they work. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say, except for the bombastic brass music in one or two scenes, um, the frights work, but even better than the frights, th there's just something so unstable about what kind of movie you're watching, which, unlike, say, with Poltergeist, where the tonally it would go back and forth in ways that could be a little bit jarring um there's there's nothing jarring in the tonal uncertainty of the movie it just worked well with keeping you on your toes and like sort of anything could happen yeah but yeah i thought it was i thought it was really good i wasn't always scared but i was never bored yeah because that this videotape that kills you when you watch it you start to play it that's like somebody's nightmare and as soon as it's over, your phone rings. And what they say is, you will die in seven days. Katie told you she was going to die. She told me. She said she didn't have enough time. Did you say that I'm gullible? Okay, Gore Verbinski, who had previous to this movie made an absolutely wonderful children's film <laughs> called Mouse Hunt. I actually legitimately think that movie is hilarious. I know, because every time I visited you, say between 2001 and when you started doing this podcast, you always tried to get me to watch Mouse Hunt. And that day will never come. That day will never come. <laughs> 
Christopher Walken plays a, a mouse hunter. Anyway, yeah. but that, we're not here to talk about mouse hunter. As fun as that would be. Another day. <laughs> Maybe next episode with Matt. I'll sneak it in somehow. <laughs> it would um, be another when animals attack kind yeah. of thing. The ring impressed me on many feats, but especially because it was so different than what he'd done previously and also very visually arresting. This is a remake of a creepy, eerie Japanese film, I want to say. Japanese? Yes, Japanese. Uh, Ringu. Um, and Naomi Watts, who was, um, you know, hot off of her Mulholland Drive, uh, got one of her first big starring roles, and a really juicy one at last. Yeah. Um, she plays a reporter who, whose niece dies under very mysterious <laughs> circumstances, and who is implored by her sister to investigate the circumstances of the death. This leads her to a bizarre videotape, which has this curse of it that anyone who watches it will die in seven days. And not only does her clock start for the seven days, but inadvertently, her son's as well. Yeah, well, her ex-husband, she also... Well, that's not as inadvertent. Yeah. Um, it, that was actually something that I didn't really notice. It didn't strike me the first time I saw it, but it struck me this time. When she had watched the movie for the first time, you by that point, she had seen enough to... She was pretty convinced something was up. Yeah, so she shows it to her ex-husband whom she's still sort of friends with it, it kind of felt l like murder it's horror movie convenient that he happened to be a video editor like he could give her valuable information and it was you know right. important to her to stay alive Which and she actually... has a moment of doubt like she says i'm not sure if i should give it to you or not but of course when you say that to someone it's almost like enticing them it's daring them not to watch it right <laughs> yeah it was actually a weird choice for the remake to make him a video editor because he wasn't in the original oh. um but she was a journalist as she is in this so she knew all of the all of the important things to know about film so uh, as actually with a lot of the decisions they made for the adaptation i couldn't always tell why they were doing it like the only thing i can figure for the american version of the ring is some executive at DreamWorks just didn't think the audience would buy the fact that a woman might know about videotapes. There's no reason why they had to give that role to him. I think there's a clarity to the A, B, and C of the story in this remake that isn't necessarily as there in Ringu. But uh, most of the additions I actually really like. Uh, for the, like, I'm overall very positive on the ring. <laughs> It's harder for me to say, I think because I've seen both of them enough times, but going back to this one, uh, I was actually a little bit less impressed by it than yeah. I had been before. Maybe it's that it's really starting to be dated and not, not exactly in a charming way. Some Well, there is some charming way that it's dated in that it involves a VHS tape and <laughs> landlines that this yeah. movie couldn't exist anymore. But there is irritating things too like the um the color palette this is after the technology has been developed to give the color palette in post-production right. so where it actually has a similar palette to the original japanese one but that was done with gels and lighting and this was all done in post and has there's a feeling about this movie that a lot of it a was deliberately done in heavily textured quality yeah and you know when we see the ghost at the end of this um, just pales in comparison to the original one because it feels so CGI in this. Yeah, see, I have always 
kind of preferred the remake, but I've always wondered if it wasn't because I saw the remake before I saw the original. Yeah, it could be, because I saw the original before I saw the remake. So, like, the, the twists weren't as new to me, so... Um, the tape itself, the actual images on the tape, I, I, I mean... I think it would be an interesting sort of task to face as a director. I don't know how specifically it would have been described in the script other than a series of, you know, horrifying images. Well, no, because I think each of... They changed the tape for the remake, but the tape was fine both ways. Um, everything in the tape was a clue, right? Because they, they go over the tape almost piece by piece. I don't know if every piece is significant, but a lot of it becomes significant. Right. Um, so I think, you know, they just jumbled it together, but there were these things that they needed to have. Right. Well, there's like the bugs and the writhing pile of bodies and the weird sort and of... And the mirror and the tree and yeah. the woman in the mirror. The woman combing was sort of the thing that they kept coming back to. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I found it striking. I thought like... I. I believe this guy had a, a background in making music videos that, that, that it could be unnerving. And uh, I think the tape itself worked. And I, I like sort of the very threatening, imposing image of just that wellhead by itself. Even before you understand what the context of it is, yeah, it's creepy. And the idea that that hotel room just happens to be sitting over top of that well is kind of a creepy idea too, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, you know, all the pieces here. Uh, Brian Cox shows up in the movie. I love me some Brian Cox. Uh, who's Brian Cox? Uh, he was the the guy who commits suicide in the bathtub. Spoilers! Right. Towards I, the end of the movie. I I didn't like that. That was that was actually part of where I thought one of the weaknesses of the remake. By the way, it's going to sound like I'm being critical. I think this is a solid movie. There are just some choices that seemed you question overdone, um, and that was a pretty elaborate suicide get up that he had for no real reason and it it just seemed like the director decided you know was deciding to choose between being subtle and overdoing it in a lot of places and decided like you know let's just overdo it yeah. um the, you know the whole he rigs up this convoluted electrocution contraption that just every it's just too much for me like you know but the, I mean, the movie is full of big, broad strokes. That uh, that little girl's room at the top of the barn with the impossibly long ladder. Right. It seemed like an amazing feat of art direction, but not necessarily real world. But I still kind of liked it. Right, and that's a product uh, that's exclusively of the remake. Also, right. the when um, we find out that this this little girl is born evil and um, her mother kills her, it's. The scene is kind of too big in the remake for my taste. So when she's strangling her and she's crying and saying, all I ever wanted was you. Why did you have to do this? In the original, there's just a flash of this little girl standing by a well and her mother pushing her in. And I thought that understated scene, much worse. it seemed just so much more elegant to me. Yeah. Um, in the way that the ghost in the original seemed more elegant to me. But I like this bait and switch because we see the woman in the tape, so we associate the evil with her. Right. And uh, she murders this child. She is bad. So Naomi Watts interprets it the same way we we do, and she, you know, finds the body in the in the well and releases the spirit, as it were. And I think that's the other big payoff, the thing that really worked for me in the in the movie. I remember watching this in the theater and. Uh, 
she's out of the well and they're in the car and I was like looking at my, my wife and I was like uh oh <laughs> well the credits haven't rolled so something bad is going to happen because everything is nicely wrapped up right well no this wasn't a sweet innocent little girl as you said she is very evil and by letting her out she has really unleashed this evil upon the world and uh although that was another question and this this not a product of the remake right. um uh, maybe a little bit, because there's that kid that's maybe a little bit overly precocious um, that at the end says to his mom, why did you let her out of the well? That's what she wanted the whole time. Well, I mean, You should have mentioned that at some point. <laughs> well, not just that, but why? What's going to get worse? People that see this tape are still going to die when they see the tape. Well, we find out that she'll be able to follow them, because in spite of the fact that they move, she tracks them down for the ring, too. <laughs> I don't think that was the... I mean, I think they wrote The Ring 2 on the fly. Yeah. Um, all, all they had to know at the end of this one was copy the tape and show it to somebody else. Yeah. Well, they could do that. Like, But the little ghost was no longer stuck in that well. She could be wherever she wanted to be. Well, she's going to be wherever the tape is, right? This right. tape is going to be infinitely copied. Right. So it doesn't seem like things have gotten worse or better. Things end on kind of a... Sh- Something between a shitty note and a hopeful note. Um, they they crack the code on how to avoid getting killed with the by watching the videotape, but the price that that implies is a pretty steep one, right? Why? What? Because if you show the tape to somebody else, you're off the hook. Yeah. So. Show but it. if you show the tape to somebody else, they they they'll die. Yeah. So show it to a pedophile. Well, I thought, could you just just agree to watch the tape once a week and pass it back and forth between two people? <laughs> yeah, that would be another way to lawyer. <laughs> for, for, what's the ghost's name? Anyway, that would be a way to lawyer the ghost, just to keep passing it back and forth. Then Friday just, night is ring night. Indeed. But God help you if you miss a week. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't care who is sick where. You better, you better make time for this. It's like a five-minute video at best. Right? Um, overall, I think... Uh, I like it works more than it doesn't and the fact that it's a little bit dated it's just I think speaking to how quickly films are starting to get dated really it's not a it's not an ancient film what what year was this like 98 or something no it's from the 2000s 2003 look at that see it's it's like 11 years old and it feels like it's this relic (laughs) strange yeah, because I mean, because it, it's so early two thousands in a way that having just recently come from that, I think the I mean, it's before nostalgia for the early two thousands has kicked in. So right yeah. now, it's uh, it's dated before it's had a chance to be retro, yeah. which is maybe like some of the aesthetic that I have a bigger problem with now than I had before. Maybe it's just because it's that age where it's hard to. I mean, the way 80s were so bad in the early 90s, but now in the 2000s, 80s are kind of cool in their way again. Yeah. Um, and that's happened forever. Um, um, one of the things that I thought was really good, there was a scene, and this is a product of the remake, there was a scene on a ferry where a horse freaks out around correct. Naomi Watts because she's been cursed. And the whole scene was pretty good, but then the horse freaks out and runs off the ferry and hits its head and breaks it and that whole scene was very visceral and then gets dragged into the propeller 
and it's not random they they you know establish it well in the story that uh, because Samara had to sleep in the barn it kept the horses up that they were disturbed by her presence and started acting weird and eventually ended up running themselves off of cliffs and right stuff. yeah and her mother really loved horses so that yeah. was another way to so it, it wasn't just like a what the fuck was that sequence it was weirdly set up and it, you know yeah points points and uh, it also, I think, for me, it was the first time I remember seeing it, that weird ghost face. When we saw a flash of what the victims of Samara looked like, they looked weirdly saturated with water, screaming mouth ghost face. Yeah. That image would be appropriated by ghost movie after ghost movie after ghost movie after this. But I'm pretty sure, to my memory, this was the first place I saw it anyway. Maybe. I mean, that's something that the the original had. Had as well, yeah. Yeah, it was a little bit different... Um, a little bit more computery in this version. Yeah, I think. yeah. And it, uh, this review, I'm I'm sounding like one of those awful people that is against remakes or <laughs> you know is complaining about every choice. When I first saw this, I thought it, these two movies side to side were really interesting for me because I thought the remake added more interesting elements that weren't present in the original, but the original was more Scarier. viscerally scary. Now I do actually think that there was. There's sort of a bigness to this, a high-budget DreamWorks movie, that the shots are good, the acting's good, everything's good. Thank God Naomi Watts didn't forget to have that scene where she walks around in her underwear. Yeah, for gracias, gracias. Nothing to do with the plot. Um, it just didn't work that well as a ghost movie to me. It would have worked... Like, it just wasn't all that scary. I thought it was... A little bit over overworked in that. I like the mythology. I thought it did have a creepy thing, and creepy little kid things are kind of fairly, you know, familiar. And I thought they did the creepy little thing, kid thing well. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll give points to that. And the twist, it wasn't like the sixth sense slap my forehead, holy shit! I did see it coming just by nature of the movie progressing beyond that point. <laughs> but, but then, uh, it but then worked. that actually kind of means you didn't see it coming. Yeah. Which is, I mean, the twist in this I thought was I mean the first time that I had seen it it sort of blew my mind right because yeah. the whole movie had been about um, you know giving this, solving this puzzle solving the murder and then or solving whatever happened and then giving the victim a proper burial and so many ghost movies follow that you find the bones in the attic bury them problem solved yeah and then this movie just really makes you think well why why do we trust that convention yeah. so much no, the real answer is just to leave the ghost the fuck alone if you can. I get tired of hearing myself sing the praises of Guillermo del Toro. And I do think that his last film was a little bit of a misstep, I gotta admit. What was his Pacific last Pacific Rim? Oh, uh, I only saw... I just watched that with my neighbor and we fast-forwarded through everything that wasn't a fight scene. Yeah, see, it's simultaneously awesome and stupid at the same time, but uh, that may be a conversation for another day. This is uh, really, I think, 
solid as a rock ghost movie called the the devil's backbone it concerns a little boy who was orphaned by the spanish civil war and sent to this creepiest shit orphanage and uh the new world life that he's introduced to is of course hard and difficult to adjust to but it is further complicated by the presence of a ghost a child, a ghost of a small child, who's just the visual on it is so wonderfully rendered. Yeah, the CGI works really well on that. I keep complaining about CGI in ghost in stuff. In this case, absolutely one hundred. And I think mostly because it was classical effects, like mostly it was makeup, and then I think they just CGI blurred some bubbles around him, so it always looked like he was underwater. Yeah, because as we find out his fate, and that seems pretty obvious. His fate was that he was thrown into a vat of water. His body was lo- was lost into this vat of water. I'm going to just show and put my cards on the table right away and say that I'm a huge fan of this movie. I really like it. And how much do I like it? It's the one movie in which I, I bitched about it in the last episode where a character is killed off and his ghost shows up to save the day. <laughs> Pisses me off. There's an element of that plot conceit to this movie. But I still give it a pass because the journey is so good. And the the stakes, the peril of this adventure that this little boy has himself, like, you think it's bad after the first 15 minutes or so, but it, it, the stakes just get higher and worse and worse and tougher for this little kid. It's, it, it, it's amazing. Yeah, like, I had forgotten how many children died in this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's... It is rated 18A, and uh, it earns it. Yeah. Um, I think t- as far as your, um, whatever the equivalent of deus ex machina is, <laughs> but with ghosts, um, the reason it worked so well in this, there there are two sort of scenes at the end where ghosts help out these kids, um, and one of them, they're locked in a room, and somebody who's Needs a ghost open a door. lets them out, and I think it it just wasn't like that wasn't the climactic saving their life or anything if that hadn't happened they probably would have died yeah. but it wasn't this big build up to that and actually we thought or no we didn't think it they thought that somebody else had opened the door for them i think i guess it was obvious to yeah, us yeah the that, kid who had brutally broken his foot yeah that was an awful scene. oh jesus i hate even talking about it <laughs> and then there was a scene at the end where they push the bad guy into the pool where the ghost kid gets him yeah. but they were they were corralling him there anyway that was always their plan to get him there so that wasn't really deus ex machina yeah. so i think you may still be able to complain about that thing where somebody dies and comes back as a ghost to save him because this this was subtle about it yeah. or not it wasn't over and the top. The whole movie wasn't building up to that point. It was, in a way, just sort of a plot point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and everything around it, like I say, was so good. One question that I will have to ask about this movie, I, we recently did Have Yourself a Scary Little Christmas, and we talked about rare exports. Right. And I proposed this question. Who is this movie for? <laughs> Um, us? I, I, mean, I think we're the perfect demographic. <laughs> Absolutely. But, like, sensibly, when I see a horror movie that has, like, a little kid in the center of it, I think it's like a PG movie, you know? <laughs> like, that it's gonna... Every, he'll be in, in scary situations, but everything's gonna work out okay for him. And like I say, this movie starts with everything not being fucking okay with him. He's being dropped off at this orphanage and in deep denial about the fact that his father has died. You don't get dropped off at the orphanage if 
you know, dad is coming to pick you up any day, right? Yeah, and actually the person that brings him there is his tutor, who's also um, a resistance fighter in the Spanish Civil War, and he thinks that they're just there for a few minutes, so his tutor doesn't say goodbye, he just hops in a car and drives away, and the little kid runs as fast as he can to catch the car, and he can't do it, and it's like, okay, well, you live here now. Brutal. Yeah. And then it gets worse. Yeah. It's also another rare movie where it's a child protagonist that isn't too precocious and isn't irritating, um, and it doesn't take away from the movie. Yeah. Uh, beautiful set pieces. The scene in the rain where the he sees the bomb drop. Yeah. And, and, and a dud happily just crunching down just before his feet. Uh, it sort of seems like ridiculous to describe, but it's rendered so well. Like, uh, the storytelling at work here is fine. And we're based, you know, there's a lot of archetypes, you know. The bad guy is really, really bad, you yeah. know. And the, the sort of fatherly uh, schoolmaster is really, really good, you know. Although, there's, there's also interesting depth to the characters. Like, the schoolmaster and the woman that runs the orphanage... Um, obviously he's been in love with her forever, but she's... got the she's, hollow leg. Yeah. Um, she's screwing this really handsome young guy who, who she knew as a child at the orphanage and he grew up there. Um, but things like the old guy that's all perfect, he's also impotent. They make just a few subtle comments about the fact that his penis doesn't work yeah. and this is this weakness that he's really ashamed of. I don't know if I would say there's a cowardliness to his character, but there's a fear to his character. So he goes into town and he sees some... Because he's sympathetic to the resistance. He sees some resistance fighters being shot um, by a firing squad, among them the um, tutor to the boy who Mm -hmm. dropped him off. Um, And you can just... You just get a sense from this old guy, like he could have been like a hero poet of the resistance, but he just didn't have the courage to be able to do it. And it's, it's, yeah, very subtly drawn into it. Um, I also have to, like, it's obviously, it's subtitled, so uh, I sort of feel the performances. Just the, I don't know exactly the, the all the ticks and hums of the deliveries, I guess, but all of the kids felt so damn authentic to me. Yeah. Even, like, the fact that they sort of corralled and went exploring looking for this ghost made sense, sort of the strength in numbers aspect. Once, like, they convince themselves that the ghost is real they kind of hardy boy up in a believable way yeah <laughs> a lot of the times you just like no fucking kid would do that it's the whole uh elliot going towards the creepy noise in the shed you know in et that's that's not what a kid would do <laughs> yeah. the kid would run and get his big brother and all the other kids to come out and yeah, see what was yeah. going on but we needed this to happen well also there was sort of a power struggle between the kid and the kid who was, like, the oldest of the orphan children. The established orphans, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, they have this scene kind of towards the beginning where they have to go get water from the kitchen, and this is, like, it's believable in that way when you're a kid and you're doing a commando raid down to the kitchen because you're having a sleepover, but they're also both scared because they're scared of the um, one guy um, who was like the the guy who turns out to be the bad guy the big bad of the movie yeah they're scared well the younger one will be scared of 
catching a beating from that guy. The older one saw that guy murder another kid or manslaughter another kid. So he's scared of being killed by him. And they're both kind of scared of this ghost, ghost. that they think exists, but they're not quite sure. Um, and so there's there's a lot of dynamics with, between those two kids together and in that scene and the way that it, the shots are drawn out and the sound effects are really good and just everything is done so meticulously. And that kitchen looks like such an... 1930 poor orphanage kitchen yeah yeah everything about that set was great uh, like i was never the reality was never broken uh, like the special effects are not all, like always 100 percent. but i was never like bullshit i was never taken out of it i was always glued to it um it it, it holds me in a way that i don't think i could compare to any of the other movies in this list so for that huge points i also think it's interesting the sort of the the discovery the kids have they're obviously as i kept on saying in a harsh world but part of what they're fearing and what the adventure is is sort of them sort of getting a glimpse of the real adult world as hard as their child world is going to be they're growing up into an even harder adult world and that's when they're confronted with things like the, they shouldn't see like the sex yeah or, you know, the harshness of, you know, the adult world when they're not putting the big musical smiley face on in front of the kids. What they see about the adults behind closed doors is, is as sort of troubling as anything else to them. Yeah. And historically, like, they're growing up into the adult world in about the worst time to be doing this in Spain because... I mean, at the end, they, they escape the orphanage and they're hobbling away. Well, the next town is... I don't not know, much safer. Yeah, and it's... It's not close, like it's a like a 12 hour walk and one of them, his foot's all broken up and yeah. it's in the hot sun and there's some question about whether or not they could make it and if they did, the Spanish Civil War is still going on. Like who's going to have room for 20 orphans, yeah. And then even if they survive that, they can catch a breath and be old enough to be conscripted to fight in World War II a few years later. Like, things are not Good getting God. better for these kids. So the fact that they don't die, it's not really exactly a happy ending. We certainly don't wish them death. <laughs> yeah. Um, they toughen up a little bit, but I, it's hard to say... Like, there, I don't know that there's really a moral or a lesson to the movie. Maybe something about sticking together and never giving up. Yeah. Or something trite like that. But I, I don't know, it's... Um, they get through this really tough stuff, but their life is really bleak. And the last shot is them walking across these barren, I don't know if it would be described as a desert or a plain or something, yeah. um, but they're not... To in... an uncertain future. It's like a Dawn of the Dead ending almost. Yeah. Yeah, they're not in really great shape. <laughs> yeah. But, like, it, it does feel like a weird, insanely hard and dark, considering it concerns children, like, coming-of-age horror story. <laughs> And, uh, you know, that's pretty ambitious. Um, so once again, I gotta continue to give big old props to Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I my cannot only... endorse The Devil's Backbone enough, really. My only note, I made notes for all of these movies, but I couldn't really make notes for this. I just wrote, uh, there's really nothing wrong with this movie. There's almost nobody I wouldn't recommend it to. Yeah, even um, if you're not a horror fan, I think, like this movie would, would, would appeal to people who would, you know, we, we could be surprised by it, you yeah. know? Yeah, I, I mean, it's marginally not as great as Pan's Labyrinth, but... But that's a high mark. Yeah. <laughs> like, Pan's Labyrinth is pretty effing fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, that's not... Yeah. <laughs> no criticism there. Great double feature. 
So there it was, six more ghost movies ranked, just like that. Um, uh, well, I don't know. Is this the one? Is this the one where we go six for six? Mm-hmm. I'm excited. I don't think you it don't is. Think so. I don't think it is. Um, well, hit me, man. Because I have a feeling that we disagreed on what the one that I keep referring to is obviously the weakest one right. of these, which is The Haunting in Connecticut, Right. Uh, which I suspect you will think is the second weakest. Mm. Um, I just, I didn't see the point. I thought it was derivative. I got this sense that somebody had learned of the fact that Victorians took death photos because there's some that pop up on the internet. Right. You know, the weird things that they Victorians did. Um, Somebody just saw those and saw a picture of somebody with ectoplasm. There's some photos of that uh, and thought, I'll base a movie around that and (laughs) then didn't bother to go any further i just thought it just had really nothing going for it it wasn't all that awful but there's no reason to see it number two i would put poltergeist it will always be number one in my heart um but i didn't that's another one i think we're going to disagree about um it just it didn't seem as timeless as number three which was hell house which um, there were some real, like, I don't know that I would recommend it for everybody, but I really enjoyed watching it. Right. Um, there were some parts that I thought were a little bit clumsy, but you know, what are you going to do? It's 40 years old and it's a different, came different from era. a different time and they had different technological considerations and also different social constraints. Right. Um, I thought they did a pretty good job. And also most of my comments for, um, the legend of hell house, I just have uh, Pamela Franklin, who pra- played the psychic uh, Florence Tanner. I've just got her name with a bunch of hearts. <laughs> she is pretty, isn't she? <laughs> Matthew Franklin, Matthew Franklin. <laughs> uh, and that, I mean, I hate that that gave it points, but that gave it points. I liked seeing her on screen. Uh, Ring, I would recommend to almost everybody, although I thought the original, although slower, the remake of The Ring, I thought, just felt a little bit too too much in places um i didn't think it was i thought it would have been helped out by a little bit more subtlety that said i'm i'm being hard on a movie that is genuinely a very solid b like i would i would give it a solid b yeah did a good Considering job. the 12 other ghost movies that we have reviewed the ring i think is pretty fucking solid yeah well i mean even i was just trying to remember my first list there was um the Callista Flockhart movie right. that I thought might be better than Haunting in Connecticut. But other than that, of the six before this, or the 12 before this, still my worst one is better than the best. <laughs> High praise. Uh, next is The Innkeepers, which could have made it to the top of my list if The Devil's Backbone weren't such a perfect movie. Yeah. Um, there was a quirkiness about The Innkeepers that wasn't shitty and wasn't forced. The characters were really likable um but not likable in that they were trying too hard they're just uh, the movie was charismatic um and also it was scary in parts and the although there wasn't a paradigm shift type twist the ending was satisfactory or satisfying i guess satisfactory seems like low praise (laughs) um i don't know that everybody would love the innkeepers i don't know that everybody would like it as much as i did but i quite liked it but the devil's backbone. Um, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Guillermo, man. Fucking Guillermo. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, once again, we're not going six for six at all here. I, I, I regret to inform you, but uh, we agree in places that I'm happy to hear that we agree in because I was kind of worried that we might not. But you're right. I did put The Legend of Hell House in sixth place, but you know what might really have killed me on this is just like the movie is just never the book and I like the book, <laughs> you know, so I might have brought too much personal baggage to it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's fine. I, like I said, I do think I mentioned that there's some unintentional humor to it, and I do think that's there. I think, you'd, like, at this point, you might have to take a little bit of the melodrama on the chin, but it's a good Coles Notes version of the book, and if it's your gateway drug to Matheson, by all means, check out The Legend of Hell House. There are much worse ghost movies than that, but in this bone, should I put it in sixth place? Um, the Haunting in Connecticut, I put in fifth place for its complete okayness. <laughs> It is completely adequate. <laughs> in, in, in fourth place is where uh, Poltergeist washed up to me. Again, nostalgia goes a long way for me. Like, uh, I, I have I have genuine affection for the movie. And the, the charming Disney stuff, as sort of distracting and cavity-inducing as they may be, works. Like you say, we like this family. We're on their side. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's an 80s blockbuster light show spectacle that... It's it it still gives good movie this many years later. It's it's in fourth position. Yeah. I endorse it. It's it's a classic. It's one that should be in the Library of Congress. Yeah. I think it actually probably is. I wouldn't it's be surprised. An important movie. Um, yeah. All right. So going into the top three, all the way in third place, I put The Ring. Um, again, Gore Verbinski impressed me as a director. I really like <laughs> Mouse Hunt. I really like The Ring, and I was really depressed that he spent like the next eight years of his career doing these stupid Pirates of the Caribbean movies, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, the twist works. The ghostly little kid is creepy. Um, the stakes that the movie set up, you know, are, are really good. You got seven days to solve this puzzle, or you will die. Uh, and now you have to solve the puzzle for yourself and your son. And now, you know, you've let the ghost go, but the ghost is still a problem. Like, you're constantly getting more piling on to, to raise things. And, uh, I don't know, solid, solid remake. And, you know, you don't say that as often as I would like to. There are good remakes, but there are many more shitty remakes. Yeah. So, points to that. This is the one I thought I was going to be in shit for. <laughs> in second place, I do put the innkeepers, but I absolutely agree with you when you say this is not necessarily for everybody. In fact, if there's a film that's going to polarize audiences anywhere in this group, it's probably this one. I, I can see if it catches you on the wrong day or if you're looking for a little bit more of a roller coaster ride, people finding this movie tedious. But if you're willing to meet this movie halfway, if you, you know, are, get into the character and the atmosphere, it earns its scares and uh because of that although there may be fewer in them than you're used to in a horror movie the ones that come really work so yeah i continue to be a fan of ty west but guillermo del toro i mean holy shit man holy shit dude this this another sort of child fairy tale and it, like i totally get why he calls it a companion piece to pan's labyrinth because yeah. it's another child in a horrible environment who somehow you know struggles to persevere um it's an r-rated ghost story but i would encourage everyone everyone to watch it and um it's one of the you know everybody's heard of pan's labyrinth but i don't think everyone's caught the devil's backbone so 
Once again, I def- it seems like default, you know, rank number one, Guillermo. I think almost every time he comes up, he ranks high. I think Mimic's the only time he didn't claim the prize with me. Well, so it's far. only because you haven't ranked Hellboy movies, or at least the second one. <laughs> yes. Not very good. <laughs> Hellboy 2, the less good one. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. This, I thought, would be the time... I really wanted to beat my nemesis, Karen Giese, whom I've never <laughs> met, but I've, I've heard her on this podcast, and I know she listens to all of them, so just so you know, I'm coming to get you. Um, I Shit just got real. <laughs> was going to rank, I was trying to decide between ranking the movies in the order that I liked them, or the order that I thought Larry would, right. so I could defeat you. I went with my heart, but I've written down... What I thought Larry would ring. Outhouse, Connecticut, Poltergeist, Ring, Innkeeper's Devil's Backbone. You are correct, sir. So, you know, <laughs> damn my noble spirit. <laughs> Until we genuinely agree you're not going to take the That's championship. Right. But, you know, maybe I'll give you a consulary prize of some kind here. And episode 40 is done. It's just like that. It's over with. It's finished. No more. But I'm guessing Matthew shall be back and again discussing the subject of ghosts. He's a very focused, one-track mind kind of dude. I'd like to thank him again for his time. He was in for the holidays and uh, probably shouldered out some family time to get this podcast done for me. So thanks, Matt. And thanks everyone else out there in podcast land listening to this, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I appreciate you listening to this podcast. And I hope you keep doing it. This is your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons saying, until next time.